To The Point, the negotiation podcast with Kel Jensen and Tim Cummings. Welcome back to To The Point. Kel Jensen and I are about to give you our rundown of the 10 things to do when you meet a combative negotiator. Well, Carol, do we really still have those combative negotiators today? Aren't they animals of the past? What are you going to say about them? I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that most of our listeners, at least when we're done today, will be able to recognize that, sure, there's a lot of combative negotiators out there. What's even more important to understand, Tim, is that um, the more we have a crisis in the world or the more an organization or an individual are under pressure, the more there's a risk that we will actually step into combative behavior. So absolutely, there's uh, millions and millions of combative negotiators out there. Well, so what's your first tip on what to do about them? Well, the absolutely first thing I want to share with our listeners is that the, how do you recognize a combative orientated negotiator? And one thing that we can say in general about combative orientated negotiators is their objective is to win. And uh, if you listen to that, there's nothing wrong uh, about winning in, in a uh, negotiation because that's really why we're there. The problem with the combative orientated negotiator is that quite often he or she want to win at the expense of the counterpart. So it's an approach where they're not really treating the counterpart as an equal partner. And they're definitely not looking long, long term or trying to create any good relations. Absolutely not. So um, it seems to me that we quite often circle back to preparation. And, and that's a, that's a thing I want to repeat once again. We need to be prepared and be able to identify a competitive orientated negotiator. So even before we step into a meeting where we have a suspicion that the counterpart might be uh, com very combative, we need to be able to identify that behavior and need to plan accordingly. So it's it's very important to identify even before we step in that the counterpart or perhaps individuals in the team could be co could could be competitive. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point. Count just wandering in and hoping for the best is not really going to prepare us for that sort of situation. Mm. So part of our planning would surely be thinking through what is actually the power dynamic between the organizations engaged in this negotiation and also in the context of this specific deal. After all, uh, very often we have multiple relationships with the same customer or supplier, and the power dynamic is not necessarily a constant. We may on one hand be doing a fairly um, standardized commodity type deal where the choices out on the market are, are, are large, wide, in which case obviously the power is with the buyer. On the other hand, we may equally be doing a much more uh, innovative or high-value services deal, for example, or engaging in a capital project where the choices may not be so wide. So don't make assumptions based on the past. Absolutely think through where does power lie and plan accordingly. Mm, absolutely. I completely agree. And, and on top of that, I want to add, and that's actually related to our item number three, is that quite often we can see that it's um, it's a trait, it's a behavior that is related not only to individuals, but sometimes to a whole organization. And just based on what you said, Tim, right there, sometimes I'm quite surprised because I find that organizations <clears throat> that are in a quite powerful positions 
uh, choose to <clears throat> consciously or unconsciously, they choose to use combative behavior. So let's say we have a very powerful procurement organizations. Uh, more often than not, I see that they actually utilize uh, combative behavior, which to me is a surprise, really, because if you are in a very powerful positions, you're going to end, uh, you're going to win the end of the day, regardless what you do. But for some reason that I can't explain why, they just try and, and use combative behavior as well. So one thing that you have to look at is, is actually, is it the individual that you're meeting sitting across the table? Is it that individual's behavior that is combative or is it actually a culture in the industry or the organizations? And, and the last thing I want to say about this topic is that I find, and I, I think you might agree with me, Tim, that some industries are way more competitive than other industries. Uh, and some industries are basically not competitive at all. Uh, two extremes, and I, I obviously I make it very extreme because there's always a, an exception to the rule, but I have found throughout my work that the construction industry worldwide really might be um, a little bit more competitive than other industries. And, and if you move into pharmaceutical, then might be less competitive than other uh, well, other 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 businesses as well. So you can definitely identify some industries and 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 businesses that are more competitive than others. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And certainly, I recall one major corporation that became really interested in trying to cut negotiation times by perhaps approaching things on a more balanced level. That uh, when they got to the legal department and really started discussing that in detail. They came back to us and said, you know, we've decided we don't really want to be reasonable. So <laughs> we do certainly need to take that into account. Um, but, but building on that a little bit, of course, is why is it then that some of those individuals um, are perhaps more combative than others? And very often that can be driven by a lack of empowerment. Now, that may be that the particular group or department that's been put at the forefront doesn't have a lot of authority to agree anything different, that actually part of their measurement system may be compliance with the standard terms. Um, but equally, sales groups, too, very often are not given empowerment uh, with the deliberate intent of trying to push customers into accepting a standardized template. We do need to dig into that. We need to understand whether our issue here is in fact being driven by that lack of authority. And if it is, then we need to be thinking about how do we work around that lack of authority to talk to somebody who maybe does have authority for real negotiation, as opposed to what you and I often term non-negotiation. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, sometimes meeting a competitive orientated negotiator is really a non-negotiation um, because he or she might just be dictating the terms and don't show any openness or any interest in negotiating anything. Um, and that leads me off to the next one. And that is really to uh, identify whether this is the individual behavior um, or it's the team that has that behavior. And one of the ways we can deal with that, and, and one thing I actually forgot to, to share with our listeners, Tim, is that in general, we shouldn't really be that nervous about meeting a competitive orientated negotiator because they're not that tricky to handle, really. Um, it's actually kind of a primitive approach into negotiation. We just need to identify that, hey, this is competitive, and then bring out the toolbox and pick the tools how to, how to, uh, to deal with that. One way we can do it, actually, if we have spotted 
a counterpart, an individual in the counterpart team that we feel is very competitive is actually asking for a break. Um, what, what I'm sharing with everybody right now is never something we should do in front of, of both parties and certainly not the counterparts team. But uh, what I've seen uh, working out successfully several times is actually taking that individual out of the room that we feel is competitive and face to face with that person just pretty much share what we feel that we actually perceive that you're kind of competitive and it may not lead to the best possible solution for neither you or us. So is it possible we could change the behavior and the communication in this negotiation? And do you know what's in what I found quite often is that the counterpart is actually completely puzzled and surprised and saying, oh, do you know what? That was not actually my intention. Um, so it's just the behavior they've been programmed uh, to to have is not even something they chose to do. So so again, sometimes bring it down to a human level and just talk uh, person to person. But as I said, don't do it in front of of he's a she's group because then you could obviously lose some kind of pride or or or, or face. Yeah, very good advice. And of course, building on that again, girl, you've really got to be clear about what the actual cost to them is associated with that combative approach. I mean, if in fact there isn't really any downside, then there's no great motivation for them to change. So we need to be uh, supporting and helping them to see a different point of view uh, in terms of the uh, perhaps the performance that they're going to see, the openness to future innovation or improvement, um, or, or more generally, I suppose, from the sales side, perhaps the opportunities they're not going to be so seriously considered for in the future. So building up that profit and loss account, in a sense, associated with combative behavior is going to be a fundamental component of what you need to do. I love the English word if, especially when I'm negotiating, Tim, because if is just a wonderful way of bringing out a new proposal. You know, I am willing to do this if we could, because if is not very committing, it's just a kind of a proposal. And when we are sitting with a, with a counterpart, we believe is very combative. We could actually start off doing, try to do some kind of trade-off by saying, if we agree to what you propose, then we would instead ask to do this and that. And, and another way we could deal with the competitive orientated negotiator is actually what I call play along. And play along doesn't mean that we agree with the counterpart. We should certainly not do that because then we're just concession orientated. But what we could do is that when the counterpart comes in there and argue for something or, 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 or dictate something or want something from us, we could instead just be 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 listening very carefully. Now, Tim, I know you've been traveling in Asia as well, and all our listeners who've been traveling in Asia, if you've been traveling in Asia and stayed at what I would call six or seven star luxury hotels, they have a different level of, of service and understanding of service in, in Asia. I'm sure you would agree with me, Tim. So if you checked into the Oriental, for instance, in Bangkok, and Tim, you go to your room, but you're unhappy with your room, so you return back to the reception to complain. <clears throat> What, what what do you think is going to happen when you go back to reception to complain? Do you think the people at the reception will start arguing with you and say, shut up, Tim, you have checked into one of the best hotels in the world. You just go back to the room. And if you're unhappy with the room, you can just check out and go to another hotel. No, they're not going to do that. They're not going to argue with you at all. And obviously, they're not going to agree with you either and say, you know what, Tim, you actually got the worst hotel, uh, sorry, the worst room in the whole hotel. That's not what they're going to do either. What they're going to do, and listen carefully, everybody, is they're going to say, um, Tim, I uh, I understand you feel there's a problem. Let me see if I can help you deal with that problem. 
right? So we're not agreeing or disagreeing with the counterpart. We're simply showing empathy. So we're showing that we understand the counterpart's issues or problems or whatever they feel is an issue. And then we try to, to solve that. So I would I would recommend that as a behavior when we're talking uh, to a very combative orientated negotiators as well. Usually it doesn't pay off getting into counter combative behavior or start arguing even more. But that, of course, is very much at the root of what I was just going to comment on, too, about thinking through what are disarming tactics. As you rightly say, meeting combat with combat is probably unlikely to lead to a positive result. So how do we, and you touched on one or two examples of how we maybe help people to feel a little bit uncomfortable about the position they've taken, um, of introducing uh, possibilities that will depend upon a greater degree of openness and collaboration. Um, but certainly just not reacting, not being phased by that behavior. Uh, if we appear to be nervous, if we appear to be irritated, you know, that very often is adding power because often, of course, combative negotiators are to some extent bullies. Mm. And they take pleasure out of seeing the counterparty discomforted by their behavior. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. It it actually reminds me. I I I, ne I never forget this, Tim. It was several years ago. I was sitting with a, with a client in a negotiation with the counterpart who had monopoly. And one piece of advice I want to share with everybody is that try and avoid negotiating with anybody who got monopoly because your alternative is what? Well, there isn't any. And not only were the counterpart um, in, 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 in a very strong position because they had monopoly, but this guy, this gentleman on the other side of the table was a very combative orientated negotiator. And he started every meeting we had by, I'm, I'm not exaggerating his story, he was knocking in, in the table and standing up and shouting and saying, we want this and it's not good enough and if we can't get it and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and he just continued like that. That was the behavior every single time. So I was trying to help my client dealing with this combative orientated behavior, but I had to give up because it didn't work at all. So I told my client, good luck. If you choose to continue with this counterpart, please do, but I'm not going to participate because obviously I can't help you. Then what happens in was a couple of months after I have left that negotiation, my client called me back and said, you know what? I found a way to deal with that counterpart. And I said, really, please, please teach me. And I'm always willing to learn. What did you do? And he said, well, you know what? The next meeting we had after you left, the counterpart started off uh, the, the negotiation as usual by standing there and yelling and shouting and banging his fist into the table and saying, we want it if we can't get it and blah, blah, blah. And he would continue like that for about five or 10 minutes. And then my client said, I was just sitting there quietly looking at the counterpart. And when when he stopped talking, he was actually breathing very hard as well because he was he was a big guy at the same time. Then I just calmly looked at him, my client said, and then and then I said, but you know what, Mark, I didn't quite get that in the middle. Could you repeat that for me, please? And um, I don't know why I can pause on that advice, uh, Tim, but it worked in that case because then all the energy was completely gone. Um, but, um, you know, the warning here probably is that if there was any any energy left, you would probably get a nuclear explosion on on the other side of, of the table. But anyway, my, my point is um, don't necessarily just give in. You should not accept the bullying behavior you, as as you just talked about, Tim. You shouldn't just tolerate it and you shouldn't, sh shouldn't just accept it. So a solution sometimes, besides showing empathy, as I talked about a little bit, uh, before uh, an alternative to that is actually saying no. Sometimes we just need to say no. 
Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. We just have to have an alternative. We just can't sit in a negotiation saying, no, I don't want to do that. No, that's not possible. So we have to bring up an alternative. So no, I can't do what you propose right now. But as an alternative, instead, we should do something like that. Of course, we've had some great examples in uh, the negotiation room from our experts who have recounted some of their experiences of that bullying or abusive behaviour uh, and how they have dealt with it. And often it does mean calling a break, trying to have the negotiation leads, break out to have a conversation, to set principles for the way things will behave from that point on, um, because it isn't right, and it isn't right, certainly as a negotiation lead, to subject your team to those sorts of behaviours. I do remember one occasion, if I may very quickly, um, we did talk about humour in negotiation in one of our negotiation rooms, and of course mm. that can be an interesting tactic and technique. I uh, I recall when I was in the working in the automotive sector, which is another one that has traditionally been quite combative, and uh, having a, a CFO who was one of those who was beating the table, shouting, etc. And it was very clear to me that we were not going to reach agreement. So I reached a point where, as a matter of principle, I stood up and I said, look, we maybe will resume another day, but it's clear that today we're not going to make progress. I walked through the door, opened it. Two things happened. The door handle came off in my hand, and I found that I'd opened the door to a broom cupboard. <laughs> 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 Even that combative negotiator had to last for that situation. <laughs> we were able to sit down from that point on. I'm not sure one could plan for that particular. No, no. It's just interesting how appropriate humour, um, unexpected events can change the, the environment. And of course, just building on the point I just made, we do always finally have to ask ourselves. If this is the approach that we're seeing from the counterparty now, and if this is an embedded organisational behaviour, or if this is going to be a person that we're going to rely on for the yeah. future relationship, do we really want to be here? Aren't there other places it would be smarter for us to go? That, I think, concludes our 10 things to do when you meet a combative negotiator. And we'd love, of course, to hear of many audience members who'd like to share back with us some of their experiences and the techniques they've perhaps used to turn combative into cooperative or even collaborative. Absolutely. And uh, as I said earlier, I would in general... I uh, say that we shouldn't really be scared of the competitive orientated negotiator, even though it is a very unpleasant uh, uh, meeting to be in. There are ways to to deal with that, and and collaboration should definitely be one of the tools that we try to to work with. Absolutely, we will be back two weeks time, and next time I think we're going to be talking about the top ten things that make a negotiator great. Can't wait. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Tim. Bye bye. To the point, the negotiation podcast with Kel Jensen and Tim Cummings.